Last Sunday, a congressman who calls himself a pastor ended the opening prayer of the 117th Congress with these words. These are his words. I'm quoting him. They're not my words. Quote, We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God Brahma and God known by many names by many different faiths, a men and a women. Now, I don't make it a practice to critique a fellow pastor's prayer, but I was deeply troubled. And I need to speak up about it. There's three reasons. Number one, According to Hindu cosmology, Brahma is the creator of the universe and of all beings. I don't get it. How a Christian pastor could direct his prayer to a Hindu god. And while Hinduism recognizes over 30 million gods, the Bible is clear. There is one God who's the creator of all, and he alone is worthy of worship. First Chronicles 16 says, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. Secondly, the Bible is absolutely clear that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Number three, the word amen is a Hebrew word. It means so it is or let it be. It's derived from a verb meaning to be firm or secure, also translated as truly or so be it. The word serves as a declaration of affirmation after a time of praise or a time of prayer. We see that in Revelation chapter 7, verse 12. The word amen is used at the beginning of the verse and the end. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, Revelation 3.14 refers to Jesus as the amen. So, prayer to Almighty God in the name of Jesus has nothing to do with gender. And to insert a women at the end of that prayer reeks of political correctness and not biblical correctness. Well, I shared that. Uh, I, I wrote about what I just shared here as a post on Facebook. I was stunned to see how many times, how many comments and how many times it was shared. It encouraged me because it shows that many people are concerned about doctrinal fidelity and the truth of God's word. Now, I begin today with some warnings I begin with a plea for each of us to learn, love, and live God's word. And I'm sounding the alarm about the increasing rejection of biblical truth, both outside and inside the church. So these are some trends I find deeply disturbing. Uh, you might want to buckle up. I had 11, I pared it down to seven. Number one. Number one. While there's much to say about what happened at the Capitol this week, it's best to pray, which is what many of us did on Facebook Live Wednesday night, how we started our service today. 
And I know that there's some debate about who the rioters were, but here's the most troubling part of all that for me, was seeing flags containing the name of Jesus as the Capitol was breached. What kind of message is being sent when posters declaring Jesus saves are held high while people are fighting police and storming a government building? Secondly, next weekend we're focusing on how Jesus loves the preborn as we celebrate the sanctity of life. I don't understand. How any pastor can be in favor of abortion because it involves the taking of a human life made in the image of God. Number three, the advance of progressive Christianity is invading congregations, evangelical congregations where marriage is being redefined along with gender, as well as the doctrines of the virgin birth, the deity of Jesus, the atonement, and hell. Here's a quote from the Progressive Christianity website. Quote, We affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide one of many ways to experience God. I appreciated the warning Alyssa Childers shared in a post called Five Signs, Your church may be headed toward progressive Christianity. Number one, a lowered view of the Bible. Number two, feelings are emphasized over faith. Number three, essential doctrines are open for reinterpretation. Number four, historic terms are redefined. And number five, the heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. Number four, the author of the recent Passion Translation claims that God downloaded the original languages to him. This is what he writes. He breathed on me so that I would do the project and I felt downloads coming instantly. It was like I got a chip put inside of me. In addition, he claims that Jesus promised to bring him to heaven to give him the brand new 22nd chapter of the Gospel of John. There are only 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. That sounds more like Mormonism. The reason I'm troubled by that is that paraphrase, he calls it a translation, is on the site, version, and so I've reached out and asked them to take that off their platform, and we've been in dialogue. Number five, some time ago when I was praying with some pastors and ministry leaders in the community, which I love to do, during the prayer, one of the leaders prayed something like this, God, would you please give us more revelation? That troubled me. God has already given us his revelation, and he's put it in the Bible. Number six, the prosperity gospel with its promises of health and wealth cheapens the gospel of grace and replaces the Savior with self, relegating God to a bellhop. And suffice it to say, the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. Number seven, religious self-help books like those by Joel Osteen, Jen Hatmaker, Rachel Hollis, are filled with platitudes and me-centered spirituality leading many 
to be deceived. Now, some of you were saying amen as I went through that list. Or maybe I stepped on some toes and you're saying, ouch. Well, there could be a third response. Maybe you're like, how dare he? And you're upset that I even brought some of these up. So, so, but here's the real question. Regardless of what you think about what I just said, here's the question you must wrestle with. How do you know what is true? How do you know and where do you find truth today? Yeah, I, sub- I love this church. I'm going to start coming here. Wow. There you go. (laughs) Wow. So I submit our standard must be the inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word of God. God has spoken, and he's put it in a book. Now, that's not just something I believe. This is foundational to who we are as a church In our statement of faith and covenant found in our Constitution, that's the document that governs us organizationally, you'll find this statement about the Scriptures. The Scriptures have God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. So our pastors and leadership believe this wholeheartedly without apology, without reservation. And it's our hope and prayer that you also stand on the word of God as the inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative revelation from God to us. Listen, our greatest need is to hear what God's word says to us because we are facing much spiritual confusion in the 21st century. And guess what? It's only going to get worse. So two weeks ago, we learned that if you want to grow, if you're serious about growing, you're going to have to let some things go. Last weekend, we defined a disciple as someone who lovingly follows Jesus and intentionally helps others follow him. So let me ask two questions related to that. Is there someone God's prompting you to come alongside to help them grow as a Christ follower? Well, here's the second question. Maybe you're like, uh, I need to grow. Well, is there someone you can reach out to to help you grow as a Christ follower? You'll hear more about that during the series. Just wrestle with those questions. Today, we're continuing in our series called Discipleship Matters, and we're going to discover how a disciple learns, loves, and lives God's word. In honor of God's word, I invite you to stand, and we're going to read together from John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Okay, take a breath and let's just realize what we're doing right now. We get to hear God's word. We don't have to pray for more revelation. Uh, It's right here. And we're going to take a look and not just look. We're going to not just take a glance. We're going to, by God's grace, go deep in this passage. So let's hear it. Let's see it with our eyes. And so let's read it together. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, say it with me, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. 
How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You can have a seat. Thanks for reading. Always helpful, always important to consider the context when you're studying a text. So chapter 8 begins with the woman caught in adultery, which unleashes this like conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, Probably the best metaphor is like a courtroom scene. They're like attacking Jesus with evidence. Jesus is making some claims about who he is. He says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the son of God. A lot of them push back. But if you look at verse 30, just go up a verse, it said others believed in him. Verse 31 speaks to the Jews who had believed him. James 2.19 says it's possible to believe and not yet belong to Christ. You believe that God is one, you do well. Well, even the demons believe and shudder. So it's one thing to say that you have faith. It's another to actually follow Christ. So there are four descriptions of a disciple that I see in our passage. A disciple is one who grows, who knows, who shows, and who goes. Let's look first at grows in God's word. Look at the next phrase in verse 31. There's a conditional clause. If you abide in my word. The word abide means to dwell in, to remain in, to continue in, to live in. The word refers to staying in a house and you're becoming so in love with the place that the house becomes your home. And just as we're to be at home in our houses, so too we're to be at home in God's word. We don't just come to the word as an occasional guest. We're to move in and live there. We wake up here, we return here every night. The idea is we're to sit and soak in the scriptures. Notice Jesus uses the singular my word, not my words, meaning he's referring to the sum total of everything that he's taught. Jesus challenged the religious leaders, chapter 5, verse 38, and you do not have his word abiding in you. My word's not living in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, John 14, 23, he will keep my word and my father will love him and will come to him, I love this phrase, and will make our home with him. So here's the question. Is God's word at home in your heart? Is God's word at home in your heart and are you at home in God's word. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, he's writing to a group of new believers, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Listen, if you want God's word to be at work within you, you have to have God's word within you. The word abide is used again in John 15, 7. If you abide in me, in my words, abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Two verses later, Jesus urges us to abide in his love. 
In the most extensive discipleship study ever done, LifeWay Research shared its findings after a decade's worth of research. The scope of the project spanned eight countries with over 1,000 pastors surveyed and over 4,000 Protestant believers in North America. Four discipleship insights rose to the top. I think there's eight of them. These are the top four. Number one, discipleship is intentional. If you want to grow, you're going to have to go after it. Number two, groups matter a lot. Number three, reading the Bible matters more than anything else. It is the most important growth metric of all. And number four, the discipline of Bible engagement impacts every other discipline. Now, turning to Scripture, then, should be this intuitive, natural response for the Christ follower, and yet the American Bible Society's annual State of the Bible 2020 report found an alarming trend. This was their summary. A mere 9% of Americans read their Bible each day in 2019, the lowest number in decades of research. So, so here's what I want to say about that. I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty and ashamed. I'm, I want to share that so that we're motivated like, man, I got to get into God's word. But here's also why I want you to hear that. It's no wonder why our morals in the church, the larger evangelical church, why our morals and our doctrine are slipping. Listen, the only way to detect error is to dwell in God's word, and the only way to grow as a believer is to know the Bible. So, personal question, what's your plan to grow in God's word this year? If you don't have a plan, may I highly recommend the Edgewood Bible Reading Plan. You can get to it on our website, mobile app. There's some out at the resource kiosk. I appreciate how vulnerable this pastor was. He wrote these words. When I miss the word for some days of neglect, my sight of him becomes blurred, my savoring of him becomes dull, and my showing him, which is what I exist for, is diminished or forced. This past week, I met with Pastor Kyle, and he shared with me how our mainspring ministry, that's college and 20-somethings, is focusing on five disciplines for the first 40 days of 2021. While we were talking, I was reminded of how the words disciple and discipline go together. And I wrote this down, you won't grow as a disciple without practicing the spiritual disciplines. Well, I want to share what they're committed to. Number one, prayer. Focus prayer. Here's what they're praying for. Repentance, renewal, reconciliation, unity, spiritual growth, discipleship, missions, and reaching unreached people groups with the gospel. Hey, by the way, let me just insert this. When you hear somebody dissing the millennials, you don't let them get away with it. I like to refer to that this generation as the Jesus generation. Second thing they're doing is fasting. That's purposeful abstinence from food, certain meals, or other things that take up our time. And Kyle spelled that out. Social media, 
Video games, certain hobbies, sugar, caffeine, etc. A couple days after Pastor Kyle taught on this, I saw somebody in Mainspring post on Facebook, and he said, hey, just be careful, I'm not drinking pop, and I'm really angry. (laughs) (laughs) Number three, scripture reading, following a Bible reading plan focused on Jesus, discipleship, and disciple-making. They're also committed to scripture memorization. Um, There's a memory verse on the bottom of the Edgewood Bible reading plan. You can also get those memory verses in a study that they're following growing in Christ. And finally, discipleship. A disciple is a believer who lovingly follows Jesus and intentionally helps others follow him. That includes accountability and regular meetings to study the Bible using this Growing in Christ book and doing life together. So here's a question for those of us who are older. What about us following the lead of our young adults? See, as we grow in God's word, we will show that we're true disciples because a disciple learns, loves, and lives God's word. Secondly, it shows that you're a true disciple. Look at the last part of verse 31. Jesus teaches that it's possible to make an emotional decision without becoming an actual disciple. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, comma, you are truly my disciples. So it's one thing to believe Christ and have good feelings. It's another to receive Christ by faith and follow him for the rest of your life. True disciples live in God's word and allow God's word to live in them. He, Jesus, in John chapter 6, gave some really hard discipleship demands. And I commend that chapter to you. As he talks and as he's teaching, some of the disciples, that word disciple means follower, learner, so it's not just the 12. So there were others listening to Jesus, and they said, time out, this is too hard, Jesus. And they left. They're like, we're out. So now Jesus looks at the eyes of the 12 disciples, and he says, what about you guys? Are you also gone? John 6, 68, Peter speaks up. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The word truly means really or certainly. So a disciple is literally a learner, one who's being mentored by the master. It also denotes one who follows another's teaching. Thus, a disciple is a lifelong learner who lives out what he or she is learning from the teacher. In my Bible reading today, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus said, it's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. Ah, so we don't just learn from what the teacher says. No, we become more like the teacher as we spend time with him. So when we grow in God's word, we'll show and we'll know that we're true disciples. Why? Because a disciple learns, loves, and lives God's word. Number three, knows the truth. Look at the first part of verse 32. And you will know the truth. Incredibly, Jesus references truth seven times in this section. Now, this verse is often taken out of context. So get this. It's important to realize truth is not primarily a principle, not primarily a philosophy or a platform. It's a person, and his name is Jesus. 
John 14, 6, I am the way, Jesus said, and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the question that Pilate asked Jesus still echoes down through the centuries. John 18, 38, with truth standing right in front of him, Pilate said, what is truth? And he failed to recognize that Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life was standing right in front of him. He missed it. Friends, we live in a society that's missing truth today. Our society does not have a love for truth. We live in a society that has trouble with truth. So listen, if you want to know the truth, Get to know the one who is truth and then follow the truth of what he says in his word. I'm fascinated by how many times Jesus uses the phrase truly, truly. It means very truly. It's always fascinating me because everything Jesus says is true, right? But then there are times he says truly, truly. Here's what that means to me. It means I better really pay attention when he says that twice, right? In the Gospel of John, he says truly, truly, 26 times. Jesus always tells the truth about our condition. He always tells the truth about our need for salvation, how to be born again, how to love, how to pray, how to forgive, how to live on mission. Listen, in our world filled with half-truths and lies and confusion and uncertainty, Jesus prays this prayer for his followers. It's an easy reference to remember. It's John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So when we grow in God's word, we will show and know and then go because the disciple learns. Disciple loves and lives God's word. Number four, goes in freedom. Here now the second half of verse 32, and the truth will set you free. Jesus came to set us free from sin. That's spelled out later by the Apostle Paul, Romans 6, But now you've been set free from sin and you've become slaves of God. It's not like you're set free and you live your life on your own. No, you're going to serve somebody, right? You're either going to be a slave of sin or a slave of God, a servant of God. 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So the Jews are listening to the Lord here. They don't like hearing that they need to be set free, so they push back. Notice what they say. We are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? (laughs) They must have forgotten their history. Weren't they slaves in Egypt? Babylon? And now they're living under oppressive Roman rule? Not only that, they had a warped view of their own sinfulness, thinking that if they kept the rules, many of the rules they made up themselves, they were good to go. Now, before leaving this passage, Jesus gives a warning and then a welcome. Here's the warning. Sin leads to bondage. Verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. They thought they were spiritually superior. Jesus made it clear that everyone is in bondage to sin. You cannot be freed from sin until and unless you admit you're enslaved to sin. That's the warning. Here's the welcome. We sang about it earlier. The sun is the bondage breaker. 
Verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is more evidence that the Son is truth itself. Go back to verse 32. The truth will set you free. What do we read in verse 36? We read that the Son sets you free. The Son and truth are the same thing. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, how do we apply this passage? Well, first, let's ponder a quote by A.W. Tozer. Each generation of Christians must look to its beliefs. While truth itself is unchanging, the minds of men are porous vessels out of which truth can leak and into which error may seep to dilute the truth they contain. The human heart is heretical by nature and runs to error as naturally as a garden to weeds. The heart that fails to cultivate truth and root out error will shortly be a theological wilderness. Here then are some action steps to consider. Number one, develop a plan to soak in the scriptures. You know, many of us struggle with Bible reading, so I want to pass along a helpful concept I heard just this week. The author of the post refers to proactive Bible reading and reactive Bible reading. So in the proactive side, discipline yourself to read every day so you know what's in the Bible, so you get to know God better. You know, if you look, read through the Gospels, Jesus assumed the scriptural knowledge of his disciples. He would often reference Old Testament characters and events. Well, here's one example, Luke 17, 32. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Well, if they hadn't heard that story, they, they would miss the lesson. So in order for us to remember, we must know it in the first place. So are you reading the Bible proactively every day? Beth and I have really been enjoying the chronological Bible uh, together. Secondly is the reactive side. So when you go through difficult times, allow the circumstances of life to drive you back into the scriptures. When you're dealing with death, grief, disappointment, sickness, allow the Bible to be your balm. David experienced that, Psalm 119.71, it is good for me that I was afflicted. I mean, who writes like that? It was good for me that I was afflicted, comma, that I might learn your statutes. So these approaches work together because your proactive reading will help you know where to read when you need some reactive intake. I've been challenged by a quote from R.C. Sproul. Here then is the real problem of our negligence. We fail in our duty to study God's word, not so much because it's difficult to understand, not so much because it's dull and boring, but because it is work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is that we are, say it with me so you don't leave me up here alone. The problem is we are lazy. lazy. Yeah. Well, let me give you a, a practical uh, study. Study how the Savior viewed Scripture. As you read through the Gospels, just notice how many times he talks about Scripture. I wrote down a number, pared it down to five ways, and I'll just share these quickly. I'm sure you could find a lot more. First, Jesus told religious leaders they were wrong. Why? Because they didn't know the scriptures. 
Secondly, Jesus told others that all the scriptures bear witness about himself. When tempted by the devil, Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy three different times, which means he not only knew the passages, he had them memorized and he knew how to use them when he was tempted. Number four, Jesus came to fulfill scripture. And number five, this is quite helpful. I'm sure you know people who are like, ah, you can't believe Jonah and the fish and Adam and Eve. They're not real people. Come on, what are you guys thinking? Noah and the flood, sure. Listen, Jesus did. So you're going to have to take it up with him. Jesus referenced Adam and Eve, Matthew 19.4, Jonah and the great fish, Matthew 12.40, Noah and the flood, Matthew 24. Third application, and some of you are really going to like this one. I'd encourage you to take Pastor Ray Pritchard's class on the book of Revelation. He'll begin that class this Tuesday night. It'll be every Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and Thursday night. You can access that at 7 p.m. through the Keep Believing Ministries Facebook page or their YouTube channel. Keep Believing is one of our Go Team partners. That class was supposed to start last week, but Ray and Marlene got COVID, so he's hoping he can launch it this week. I talked to him yesterday. I I think he's up for that. Number four, test the teaching you hear. Not every bestseller is the best book to read. Not every podcast is worth your time. Not every popular preacher is worth listening to. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That means you should check what I say as well. When our daughter Megan was just seven or eight years old, I asked her to review a video uh, with me. The video was put out by a very popular pastor. We went down in our basement. We were living in central Illinois, so she's seven or eight years old. We're on the couch. I'll never forget it. We're watching the video. I'm leaning forward, taking notes. I was getting a lot out of it. And I hear her say, "Uh, Daddy, I wrote it down so I didn't forget. Daddy, this doesn't sound right. I don't think he's being biblical. (laughs) Well, I listened a little bit longer and turned it off. She was spot on. And she caught error before I did. That man is now a full-fledged heretic and goes around the country doing seminars with Oprah Winfrey. He was a pastor Listen, the best way to spot a counterfeit is to be familiar with the real deal. So we need to know the truth of the Bible if we're ever going to spot error. I'm told when bank tellers are trained to recognize counterfeit money, they're given real money and they're told, familiarize yourself with this. Touch it, feel it, smell it, hold it up, look at it, become very familiar with the real money. So then when counterfeit comes, you're like, ah, this isn't right. Number five, don't become spiritually sleepy. We established this last week. It's good to remember, you will not coast into Christ-likeness. Romans 13, 11 says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So it's time for us to live on mission by obeying the great commission. Sometimes we take the word of God for granted. We don't value it the way we should, like a young man who was getting ready to graduate from college. 
His name was Philip. He had eyed this beautiful sports car at the dealer's showroom, hoping his father would purchase it for him when he graduated from college. And each day leading up to the big day, he looked for signs to see if his dad had purchased the car. After the graduation ceremony, the father summoned his son to his private study. Proud father handed his son this gift wrap box as he expressed his feelings about the big accomplishment his son had achieved. Intrigued, but to some extent disappointed, the son unwrapped the box to reveal a leather Bible with his name embossed on the lower right-hand cover. He raised his voice. He shouted at his father, You cut me a Bible for graduation? I mean, with all the money you have, you got me this? The son left the Bible on his dad's desk, stormed out of the office, and his relationship with his father was fractured from that point on, and he never apologized for his outburst. He went on to become, he got married, raised a family, ran a very successful business, lived a very comfortable life. One day he received a message stating his father had died from a massive heart attack. The son was in charge of the estate, so he needed to come home and execute the wishes of his father. And as soon as he arrived, regret overwhelmed him. Searching through the papers on his father's desk, he came across the Bible he had received for graduation, still in the original box. With tears streaming down his face as he flipped through the pages, he noticed a bookmark next to a verse that his father had carefully outlined. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him, Matthew seven eleven? And as he closed the Bible, he felt something attached to the back cover. It was the key to the sports car he had wanted with the tag of a local dealer's name on it. And inscribed on the tag was his graduation date and three words, paid in full. Friends, some of God's richest blessings are packaged in the Bible. And unfortunately, many Christians will live and die without ever experiencing them simply because they didn't open it every day. So will you learn it, love it, and live it by growing, showing, and knowing and going? You know, some people, as we began today, believe that all religions are the same. David Platt illustrates how Christianity is different. He had a conversation with two guys who followed two different religions. Platt writes, it's almost like you guys picture God at the top of a mountain and we're all at the bottom. I may take this path up, you may take this path up, but in the end, we'll all be in the same place. Well, these two guys smiled and said, exactly, you understand. David, David Platt then said, well, what if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain didn't wait for us to find our way to him, but he actually came down to where we are? <laughs> they responded, well, that would be great. Uh, to which he replied, well, that's the difference. What we find in the Bible is the story of God who has not left us alone to try to find our way to him, but he has come to us and he has made the way to us through Jesus. Listen, you can have the assurance right now that your sins are paid in full because Jesus has made his way to you. 
He died on the cross for your sins. He was raised on the third day. I think of another truly, truly statement. John 3, verse 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Friend, put your faith in him today and then lovingly follow him every day and then intentionally help someone else do the same. Amen and amen. God, we thank you for your word today, for its clarity. Lord, I want to pray for that individual, either engaging on live stream or here in this place. Lord, if they don't know you yet, Lord, they could cry out and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've been far from you. I've not been concerned about truth, but Lord, I now repent. I turn from how I've been living and I receive Jesus Christ who died in my place on the cross, his blood paying the price, satisfying your righteous and holy wrath and rising again on the third day, showing his power over sin, Satan, and death itself. I now receive that free gift by faith. Jesus, save me from my sins. I want to be born again. And then, would you enable me to follow you faithfully for the rest of my life? And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.